You're listening to The Right Women Podcast, a platform created for Black Caribbean female writers and authors who audio scribe their origin stories and their journeys to authorship. I'm your host and storyteller, Empress Zynga. Episode 8, Taitu Huron from Jamaica. Taitu Huron is a gender and development specialist, human rights advocate, and performance poet. She holds a BSc in International Relations from the University of the West Indies Mona Campus and an MPhil in the Development Studies from the University of Cambridge, UK. Her areas of expertise include rights-based development planning and management and policy development and coordination and advocacy and partnership building. Her academic interests include the intersectionalities of gender, child rights, sexuality and citizenship in the Caribbean and African diaspora cultures and post-colonial politics. Ms. Huron is a long-standing activist and advocate for the rights of the women, children and LBGTQ communities. Her publications and poetry focuses on different aspects of these areas. Ms. Huron joined UWI Open Campus as head of WAND in March 2018 and continues to serve as a technical advisor to the NGO Women's Empowerment for Change in Jamaica. Hi, Taitu. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me this morning. Your bio precedes you. You have <laughs> so many things. I was like, what can I keep? What can I keep? <laughs> Um, Um, so as always I always ask about the story of my guests and asking them how they became a right woman w-r-i-t-e oh okay um I grew up in a household that uh, had my both my father and my mother were avid readers and lovers of literature and theater. My father actually um, is, was an actor. He died in 1998. He was an actor, a poet in his own right as well. Um, and uh, I just grew up around a lot of African and Caribbean literature in the house. And also my mother um, used to tell us stories, you know, and encouraged us to read. And a lot of the stories that she read were African folk tales, West Indian folk tales. Uh, until we were old enough for her to just leave us alone to read what we wanted to read. So I think um, my writing stemmed from being nurtured to read in a household and also seeing my father um, do his theatrics, literally, not just his acting, but he was quite a dramatic person in terms (laughs) of personality. Um, And growing up around that, uh, and some of his friends as well were, con- you know, are still around as, you know, he might not be, but some of his colleagues and his, you know, theater thespians were, um, or are, I should say, still um, out there producing really good work in, in, in Caribbean theater. Um, so yeah, that, that was really my environment that nourished me to write. I wrote a lot of poetry in high school Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you keep your exercise book and when things keep yes. messy, <laughs> um, so I did that for a very, very long time. 
Uh, when my, my parents got separated when I was in high school and daddy moved to New York. So we had a very strange relationship um, for a bit. Um, and I think one instance, I had shared some of my poetry with him and he didn't respond at all. Mm. I didn't know what was happening in his life, but whatever the reason was, he didn't respond. And I took that no response as rejection. Mm. Um, so I didn't write for years. Uh, like easily, I don't think I wrote anything in the form of poetry for at least 10 years. Wow. Yes, it really had an impact on me. I think it was only years later I was able to process that his non-response had nothing to do with me. Mm. Um, it had more to do with what was happening in his life in New York um, at the time. Mm. But at 15, you know, you receive those things differently. Um, mm. So, and then I started writing again when I was um, in, the U- in the UK, actually. Okay. Yeah, studying in England. Um, in, and when I'm talking about writing here, I'm talking about my poetry. Because mm. uh, I, I always also did academic writing as well. When I started writing out or when I started UE and so on, and I used to tutor, I really, you know, gotten into the academic writing and so on. Um, and for some reason, probably not unrelated to daddy's response to my poetry and non-response to my poetry, uh, I, I, I held more confidence in my academic writing at the time. So it, in a way, the academic writing had flourished um, and I had always kept the poetry and in the, you know, on the back burner and not something that I would actually share. It was still more a space where um, I'd let my rage out, or if I had, you know, different things happening in my own life, writing poetry was my own outlet, but it wasn't something that I shared um, with, with, with anybody. Um, until I went to England, and I don't know, some mad spirit just taking me. One evening they had this open mic thing at, a, at one of the colleges, um, I think it was Girton College, and I just signed up. It was really quite whimsical, you know. Um, cool. Yeah, you know, and the response was very, very well. I got, you know, it was really well received. Um, and I got a little bit more courageous after that. A uh, colleague of mine, who was a, you know, he, he actually is a fairly well-known writer and poet in, in, in England, Martin, Martin Glynn, um, and he operated out of Birmingham. And he had invited me to a performance that he was having, and it had an open mic segment. And I remember reading there, and that was also well received. So I said, hmm, maybe, <laughs> maybe something is here. Yeah. So, so that passed, uh, finished my MPhil, came back to Jamaica. Um, did, I went to work in government and I still did poetry. But what, what started to happen was that any kind of poetry events that were happening, I would, you know, take part. I would participate. In, I'm mostly open mics, you know, because mm-hmm. I wasn't really, I, st- I wasn't really still seeing poetry as something outside of reading on a stage, you know. Okay. Um, and uh, a lot of the pieces that I, I have written, to my mind, evoke um, a more performative setting rather than um, poetry that you read from a, on a piece of paper. Um, uh, so that's kind of where it was for a good while. That's where it still is, to mm. be honest. Um, 
I still do, I still work in a university setting. Um, I didn't, this, this is my return in a sense when I came back to, came back to UA here. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I did a lot of, I've been doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of advocacy work, NGO advocacy work, human rights work. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent doing some, pro, I spent some time doing some program management work with UN women in Jamaica. Um, uh, that sucked up a lot of my intellectual energy. So unfortunately, I didn't really do a lot of creative writing or academic writing during that time um, and the four years that I was with UN Women. Um, so, um, and around that time, uh, while the experience had professional value, I found that it didn't really provide me an opportunity where I could it sucked up so much my time intellectually and, yeah. and even it just really was a very time consuming job and um, um, not a very pleasant professional environment either. So mm. to be honest, it, it, a lot of the times I was just emotionally tired. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't do much writing I did a couple of pieces, but in terms of what I would normally be accustomed to producing, it definitely wasn't happening around the time that I was working with UN women. Um, You mentioned a part um, about your your father, well, your your home life, mm -hmm. um, having parents who encourage the the stories and the conversations about your African heritage and also having a father who was a performer theater, yeah. which is a beautiful medium that I am very close to as I am a thespian as well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find yourself being privileged in that regard or even lucky to have an appreciation for that? Or do you think that that may have, you know, called you at another time, the idea of performance and that style of writing and expression? Do you think it would have found you in a different uh, road or was it that this this particular thing that was happening within your household was already like a pepper pot to start something? I think it, I would say so it was a pepper pot to start something because it um what it allowed me to do was it it gave me a certain kind of confidence to express myself freely, mm-hmm. um, to not be afraid of the microphone, to not be afraid of public speaking. So even if I didn't choose to be a poet, um, just growing up in that environment, having my own voice became very natural. Mm-hmm. Um, so this notion that children must be um, seen and not heard was just non-existent in my consciousness. Um, this idea that because you're a, you're a girl child, you must keep you know stay back or that you mustn't lead. That was I didn't grow up in an environment like that. I was a group and environment that encouraged me to express myself, both myself and my brothers. Um, and that's the kind of parents that um, I had, you know, who my hair on my dad um, was definitely somebody who had his own voice, you know, and a very voice as well, uh, and a very charming one and a very humorous one. So it, it also provided me an opportunity to see the use of the voice as, as um, one that could bring people joy. Mm. 
um, my mother's use of the voice um, was, had a different tone. She also encouraged us to, to, um, to speak freely and to, but she, her space was hold your ground. Mm. You know? um, and that your voice must command space, that you must occupy the space well, that, um, and that you must occupy the space in a way where people listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an interesting balance, you know, that, that I got from both of them. Yes. Uh, and and both of them are also Rastafarians, so mm-hmm. I have to include that because it, it didn't matter. Um, and it, it mattered because I, in addition to all that that I've explained to you, I grew up in a household that was also anti-establishment mm. um, and was also accustomed to making a lot of inquiry and asking questions about what was perceived as Babylon. Mm-hmm. So this notion of critiquing systems, of asking questions, of, of not just not believing everything you hear or not accepting everything you read mm. uh, was pretty much part of, of that upbringing as well. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the ways that young people can take effective action for change in the community because you're also um, springboarding from that last point you made about um, having parents who were a part of the Rastafari community and now your journey as an activist all of this like this fine thread coming through right through this conversation but in terms of young people um growing up and standing up for themselves, how can they take effective action for change in the community? Hmm. That's a hell of a philosophical question. Mm. Um, I think it has to be measured with how they use technology. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that it, young people have to use technology, the, the, the social media or their devices and so on, in a way that um, gives them an added voice. Mm. Gives them, they can occupy space. For instance, like this podcast, mm. you know, they can occupy space that is unfiltered, that you know, nobody's telling them to be quiet, nobody's telling them you're talking too much, or you're talking too loud. It's not being filtered by um, uh, repressive parental voices, because you do have that too. Mm-hmm. And it's Which not- can sometimes be even more damaging than the community. Most definitely, you know, and, and if anything, the community then adds their own loud voice to, to young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think because they are raised, they're being raised in a space where social media and the technology is at their fingertips and it's part of their universe, they have to know how to use the technology to their advantage to, to get their voices heard rather than just ranting on Facebook, which has its place. But- <laughs> utilize the 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 the, inter- the technology um in creative ways that add their voice that speaks their truth that speaks out against injustices that may be happening to them or to their friends um in ways that can still add value and add value not just to the wider community but add value to their own own lives because i think that there's a tendency in the policy environment and even in some of the development spaces that I work, that you have these hardback adults making decisions for young people without including young people. Yeah. 
Um, so I am of the view that um, we shouldn't be making policies for people without including them. I don't find it to be legitimate. It has to be legit. It is legitimized when the very people that you are creating policies and interventions for are part of the decision-making process and are part of the creative process. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, 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 I've gotten tangential, but my key point really is how they utilize the technology mm -hmm. uh, and how they can use technology to, to defy the silences that come at them. Nice. Well, in this time and I guess too within this space where we are, what should Black Caribbean women be fighting for? Hmm. For themselves. I, 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 I don't use the word fight anymore, to be mm. honest. I think um, <clears throat> structures of oppression, whether we want to call it Babylon or racism or institutional discrimination or sexism or patriarchy, mm -hmm. um, exists or will continue to exist as long as we see ourselves as victims and as long as we are treated as victims. Um, I mean, it's a long haul and there are different ways in which people can do different things. You know, um, you have some NGOs who are doing program work and projects to reduce violence against women and girls. You have some who are focusing on children's rights. You have some who are looking at climate change. So there are, you know, there are a range of different strategies and approaches. But in terms of how black women can, black Caribbean women in particular, mm -hmm. can um, fight, use the word fight. Mm -hmm. I, I am more fighting for, not against, you know. Okay. You fight for your right to be. You fight for economic independence. You fight for health. You fight for self-care. <laughs> fight for peace of mind. You fight for peace. And you fight for empowerment. So you fight, you, it's, it's, and it's not a fight that is, you battle up yourself and you use a lot of neg and, and negative energy, but it's really about claiming a space that is peaceful, that is nourishing, that is harmonious for yourself. Yeah. So you spend more time to me building up yourself, building up your sisters, working with other women, doing positive things, you know. Um, that's part of the reason why I chose to do the work I do with one. And um, a good example is that the women, the word sound and power that we had um, some, some Yes, at UE. It was more for than a fight against anything. So you create the different spaces in which you allow women to, to show their own talent, to, to, to share their light with the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that then spreads more light, more energy. Sometimes even in allowing them space to shed light, darkness will come because our experiences are not always positive, you know? Yeah. Some of us have gone through violence, have gone through trauma. But it, 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 my worldview is that um, you work more towards creating spaces that provide light and talent and darkness will have less space to thrive and, sh and shine. You work more towards raising children who are who know how to, 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 to resolve conflict, who mm. can defend themselves, who can, will stand up for their own rights. And you will then raise children who are far more peaceful than the children that we are engaging with now. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, that's my response. So okay. it's more, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. But I with all the fight that is happening, all the 
fight for this, fight for equality, um, right. human rights, LBGTQ rights, right. um, everything that is happening right yeah. now, it, some of it yeah. is newer than others, but in some instances, I feel like we've been fighting for equality the most, the longest, whether it was because you were black, because you were gay, because yeah. you um, are a woman and you can get finances. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we seem to be fighting all the time to be heard, to be yeah. seen, and to be understood. Not, more, not, not so much to be agreed with, yeah. but at least for a level of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that as something that's becoming so monotonous? Is it going in a place of positivity, or do you think we're going to continue to have, as you say, go on Facebook and rant for like an hour and then go on with our lives and hope that somebody picks up the mess and then we fight again and we march again and yeah. we talk again and then this bill is supposed to be done in Congress, but nobody ain't really checking. But like, when do you think? an end of this will happen? Um, well, I don't know. I, it probably, I know it won't happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I think we're all already equal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we are born with, you know? It's just how we perceive it. How we, in perception, yes, agreed but also how we are socialized to treat the other. Mm. And so it goes back to my point of really a certain kind of consciousness in how we parent, you know, how we raise children, a generation of children that are not going to treat a child who's blind like shit. Mm. So we raise a generation of children who will see a youth trying to navigate his or her sexuality, mm-hmm. whether or not they're lesbian or gay, but they're just trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know? um, that, that child or that young person will not be bullied, you know, because we're going to raise, or we are raising kind of human beings. Yeah. Um, but we're not there yet. So I think it also requires a shift in the consciousness of adults, you know, how they are raising children. Yeah. Um, I, I, so in a sense, I think adults will always do what they think they should do. And some adults will always do the best that they can in the spaces that they are, whether they're advocates or good teachers or good policy makers and, you know, um, a good entrepreneur, you know, who might help raise, um, you know, encourage other young people behind them and so on. Mm-hmm. But... It, it, it has to, we have to shift the gear in parenting. That's really where I think it's at. I agree. Now you have an extensive uh, body of work in terms <laughs> of research and documenting such research um, from all over university, both here and in, in Mona as well. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that documenting research is so important for the black community and how do we go about this as writers now to produce good documented work? Um, well, first we have to figure out whether or not, you know, what voice will you occupy in the world, you know? Mm. Um, 
And if we figure out what voice we will occupy in the world and what that voice, whether it's on paper or not, you know, whether you're a creative writer or whether you're a poet or whether you're an, or a researcher or, a, you know, a political scientist, whatever, however that voice is expressed. Um, it, I think the word is important in, in recording that um, because if we don't tell our story, somebody is going to tell the story. Yeah. You know? And they're not going to tell it exactly how we would have wanted to say it. Yes. You they say to... that the, the hero of the war or the, the conqueror of the war is the one who actually writes the story for the loser and it's never accurate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we, I genuinely believe that we must write our own stories and we have very fascinating lives. You know, mm. when you read some of the iconic, iconic novels that have come out of the Caribbean, it's rich stuff. Yeah. Paul Marshall just passed the other day. Yes. You know, Ibashe, Paul Marshall, you know, she just passed the other day. Her books were like amazingly rich. Yes. You know, same thing with Tony Marshall. We can't even begin to start how her. Oh, well, look, that, I think that, that, they do say that when, uh an elder dies a library burns that really was a big library that was a humongous library of information and, and her library, her library not, not that their, their libraries will not be shot yeah. but they have left such a legacy yes. that says to me you're wasting time yes oh we can't waste time <laughs> you know so um so i think it is very important to document the work because if we don't do it somebody's going to do it Mm. And then we tell the story of how we want it to be told. Mm. So, and we, we hear that in some of the language that's being written, you know, um, how, they, how, they, how they, you know, things like African slave instead of enslaved African, you know, mm -hmm. woman instead of enslaved woman. Mm. So that, that subtlety that either gives honor to our humanity yeah. or a subtle language that does not acknowledge our humanity. So the, the, the language that we use, the voices that we have, right? And the colorful nature of the range of ways in which we speak English across the Caribbean. And it's not even good, it's not even English. Whether you, any kind of Creole you want to talk, yeah. right? But the richness of that and the variety of that is who else must tell it, tell me, <laughs> you know? And the, one of the things I want to do as a Jamaican living in the Eastern Caribbean now is to um, pay attention to the gaps that I see in research in areas that I am interested in, mm. you know? Um, it hasn't completely unfolded, right? This summer I spent, uh, it's not finished yet, but this summer I've been doing quite a bit of research, you know? Okay. In, on, 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 in some work in Barbados and also in St. Lucia. Mm. Um, and the main reason why I'm focusing on it, not just because this is where I am living now, and I believe in being present with where you are, mm. uh, but because I see the need for it. And if I'm living here, I might as well do something useful. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And in an area that I'm passionate about. Mm. Um, so combining those set of things, you know, it's very, very important mm. um, for us to leave the word and, and, and leave record of, of behind because of, 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 of the stories and the research that we want to do behind because some people will not count 
unless we count them. Yeah. You know, so they have, and in order for them to be counted, we have to count, make, make them account, make them, yes. make a count, make, sorry, I'm making up words. For some people count, even statistically, right? Yeah. We have to make them visible, make them alive, make people see them. Yeah. Pull them out of the woodworks. Empower them. them. And right, you know, let their stories be told or let give them space so that they can tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I think that I I I haven't fully grasped the, the understanding of it yet, but what I'm seeing, you know, wearing a, a um a lens of someone who was trained in the social sciences. It is that there is a dearth in, in a certain level of institutional data gathering in the Eastern Caribbean, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of how we look at different pockets of the population, you know? Yeah. Why so, do people find it so hard to do research though? I, I remember when I did my, my master's and I had to do <laughs> my foundation course, uh, research methods. Yeah. And you had to decide on qualitative or quantitative. And I hate numbers. And the lecturer at the time was explaining that we of the Caribbean, maybe more the African diaspora, but we in the Caribbean specifically do not document things. Um, I don't know if it has something to do with like an oral tradition because that is where our history stems from. So we were more talk and we will more have conversation and give stories and stuff. But when it comes to writing down this stuff and documenting it everybody either don't want to do it they find it tedious and it can be but mm -hmm. maybe it, is it that we are not researching things that we probably don't like as much that will continue us to like love the research more and getting excited about the findings i think research get a bad rap it does and i think um part of it also has to do with the institutional value of research Mm. Um, it, it takes money to do research, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It does. You know, and I think the institutional value of the research, particularly in tertiary institutions like a UE, for instance, uh, uh, it, uh, even though I work there, I, I will be. I will say that the institutional support for postgraduate students to do research is not as good or as adequate as it should be mm. because good research beginning at the postgraduate level requires money yeah you know so you'll find that some students may cut corners because uh -huh. they don't have the funding yeah to, to field the questionnaire to to and fielding questionnaires take time and mm -hmm. take transport you're looking at you know yeah. Um, printing costs. Well, no, you can do electronic questionnaires, but if you choose quantitative methods over the qualitative, you're still going to have to do your coding. That takes money. Mm -hmm. So there are various levels of research that are going to cost at the graduate level that students genuinely do not necessarily have adequate access to funding for. Yeah. And the university in, in its own way has its strapped its, its for funds. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, it, it, it might waste funds in other in other areas, but it is it, it, it says it's strapped for funds. 
in another set of ears as well. So it's quite a conundrum. And I find that uh, research that keeps us relevant can, can fall through the cracks. Mm. You know? And um, I, I don't understand why all the time, because I think research in small islands, um, whether it's, it's Jamaica or Grenada or St. Lucia or wherever, it's much, it's, it's significantly more possible, I would say, than taking on a, 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 a piece of research that is, has a scale of national relevance in yeah. Colombia or Brazil. Yeah. So, I don't know. Why is education like education, the arts? Usually when anybody has to cut funding, because we're speaking about the funding of research, anytime you have to cut funding, it's always arts and culture. It's always education and we are the ones who the practitioners always feel it the most. The teachers feel it the most. And, and on the flip side of that, these are the areas that grow society. It disrupts society. So people, <clears throat> as you say before, um, can have a voice. We, we can empower people. We can give people knowledge so that they can become more empowered. But Whatever powers at B always go to arts, culture, and education first. Yes, I don't know where that. I don't know what that is. It's not just in the Caribbean, do you know? It's yeah, like definitely globally as well. Unfortunately, it's a global thing. And in the irony of it all, is that when you're looking at what a society, what a conscious contribution is to world culture, world civilization, it's the arts they look at. You know, so. You know, they pay attention. Okay, what food, the foods, you know? Yeah. The, poetry, the writers, you know, the musicians. Like Carrie Fest is happening right now. And everybody is is so enamored with going to this, this booth for this country and that booth for that country. And they always go to literature because they want to see the philosophy and the concept of a country and what people are producing. And yet still... And I bet you if you go to get into the politics of Carifesta, it would be one hot mess about you. Oh, I know. <laughs> I've spoken to a few persons, um, mm -hmm. spoken to Kamau as well, uh, who was the originator of it all. And um, Nala, bigger yourself if you're listening, um, also had his, his moments. And other practitioners who are past teachers and now friends, still mentors, um, mm -hmm. who have given their input as well um, on what... Carifesta is supposed to mean and the unbalancedness, quote unquote, of it all after still after all these years. Right. Yeah. I guess it is what it is until yeah. we come together and fix it. Well, until young people make enough nice to fix it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I can see her looking over at me, even though this is a digital yeah. recording. <laughs> of course. Young people make them nice. <laughs> In different ways, we can define noise in various ways. Yes, I agree. Voices have to be heard, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's always room for um, what my father used to call honor the honoring the difficult, mm. you know? We can't be comfortable all the time. We have to pay attention to the things in society that, uh, that make us uncomfortable, yeah. you know? That keeps the status quo intact, but that's not necessarily good for the flourishing <laughs> set either. So those uncomfortable things, we have to honor them. 
open them up, look at the wounds, look at the scars, you know, look at the bullshit. Yep. Construct it. I own and, it. And be creative with it and come up with alternatives, yes. you know. But let it out. Let it out. Don't, you know, don't shy away from those difficult conversations or difficult topics and allow honesty to reign in its full authenticity. If it comes out as angry, yeah. then we allow the anger to come out. And because after the anger comes out, then it's you just forward. Yeah, you move, move forward. And the important thing is to move forward once those kinds of expressions come out. Because mm. anger has its use too. Yes, it does. Now we spoke as well on the Caribbean and being a part of the region as a Caribbean person via culture. And I always question this to people who are older than me and who have more experience in the world than I do. And currently, everybody is on this bandwagon of being a Caribbean person, being from the West Indies. My mother, my father was Jamaican. My auntie was Trinidadian. My great-grandfather was St. Lucian. The pop stars are now embracing that they're from the Caribbean as well. Maybe because of Rihanna and others, people want to be a part of something. But now that pop culture is a thing and everybody's doing that, which is on the one hand great, do you believe that the idea of us as having this Caribbean tag, um, is this now a trend? Is this something that's going to die off again till about another two decades? Or is this is something that we can use as a platform to showcase ourselves and have our story said via us mm-hmm. and not be... Um, looked upon as this single story of people living in huts with bad Wi-Fi and, <laughs> and very bad um, political um, groups? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I'm seeing it more as an opportunity and as also an indication of our value. Um, they, in other words, they see something that we, we don't necessarily give enough kudos to. Mm-hmm. In, People come to the Caribbean, and since I've been to Barbados, I've seen it. People come to Barbados, you know, and to enjoy the, the, the tranquility of Barbados, you know, the, the, the ocean, mm-hmm. the various sites that Barbados has to offer. And I must tell you a story. I was in a supermarket a couple of weeks ago, and this lady saw my hair. So oh, I love your hair. <laughs> you know? I said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just, I'm, I'm here for a week and I'm just having a wonderful time. Everybody here is black. I just love it. I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just did not expect that reaction. I don't know what I was expecting, but that was not it. <laughs> I really laughed. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm glad you're having a good time. <laughs> I'm just so not accustomed to, to seeing so many black people around. Black people are everywhere. Yes, I've heard that as well. You know, so... <laughs> So I said, well, enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> she, was, she was um, black as well? Yeah, yeah. From um, England. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just that there's a majority consciousness here that you can carry on with that. Even if, you know, Barbados or other islands in the Caribbean have complexities with class and race and gender, um, there is still a sense of 
freeness mm-hmm. or you know if, if for want of a better word freedom rather mm-hmm. that um we can have you know going about our business you know i i i want absolutely love going to the, the, the beach here in barbados the ease with which i can get peace of mind before I go to work in the morning is something yes. I could never replace. You not catch me go a foreign empress singer. <laughs> it does not happen. I saw one of my friends are overseas. I had a couple of friends who've migrated now to like America. And she said she doesn't go in the ocean. She said, girl, not me. Who? I wait till I get back home. She said the water is so dirty and black oh. and nasty. She said, I am not bathing in there. She will go into a pool first. Good she beach. Going to no beach. She, she know good beach. <laughs> and so it's that kind of quality of life, you know. And I'll say the same thing growing up in Jamaica, having access to rivers and so on, that you don't, you realize that it's not everybody can leave. You yeah. know, you always have some of us that will migrate, yeah. but not everybody is going to leave, and not all of us want to leave. Yeah. But I think as each generation has passed, you get a more confident person who is confident about the fact that this is where they grew up, this is where they live, and the bottom line is, them know how foreign stay, foreign no good at all, you know. Yeah. That everybody go brought them line, brought them neck to go join visa line again. Yeah. You know, so the Jamaican aunt as well. She always says everybody wants to migrate, but y'all don't know until you get here. Precisely. You know, so it's not something that I think it is. It's, there's an ease now. There's a kind of cultural confidence now that you find Caribbean people, particularly young, you know, younger Caribbean people that have taken on that the older generation mm-hmm. would not. The ease of, of commanding, you know, Bayesian Creole, the ease of talking, talking patois, yeah. you know, business who don't understand them. You must catch up, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know, because they recognize that their language is cool. It's good. It's, it's hip. Yeah. Even some of the artists nowadays, you look on YouTube, almost all of them come out to the lyric video first. Yeah. They bring in people who might not speak it to it. Yes. So that they will learn it. They will learn it. Whereas a previous generation, would, oh, they would translate for you. For what? You know, I wouldn't be allowed. You're not supposed to say this. You speak right. bad. Exactly. So there's a whole generation that they've been passed that long time. They're not into that. And I saw that in full bloom with the bits and pieces that I saw coming out at Carafesta. How the young people them just took over the place and just took up space. Yep. You know, so. It's a I beautiful think- thing. A beautiful things so i think coming out of that beauty they can beauty and confidence they can um use it as an opportunity and reshape how the story is told from their vantage point yeah. not just as say carrie washington for instance is of jamaican parentage and she honored that parentage the other day yeah. but let's be honest carrie washington must only go to jamaica like once a year yeah. <laughs> So Jamaica is a place to visit for her, even though she's yeah. connected. Yeah. You know, so we, there's a way in which we have to play with the diaspora and our diaspora linkages in that regard mm-hmm. that, you know, that can work for us as well. Like Rihanna, for instance. Rihanna, make sure so nobody not forgets where baby does she come from. Hello? And her accent has never changed. Again, no. she quote unquote, but it's for people to understand her a bit better in exactly. certain settings. But when she's relaxed and on the road, no boy, straight up, Bajan. And you better catch up with her. <laughs> you know, Google it. <laughs> Get a Bajan friend. 
there you go. You know? So it's it's. I think it can be a good thing, and it must be utilized as a good in a good way. Yeah. Good. Um, your favorite piece of writing or research Ooh. presentation? <sighs> wow, that's hard to say. I have pieces that have impacted my lives in my life in different ways. Um, um, yeah, oh, yeah. It's, I don't have favorites. I have different pieces that impacted my life in different ways. Um, Audre Lorde's writing impacted me quite a bit as an activist. Um, okay. Yeah. Inside or outside, in particular, looking at the different ways in which she um, acknowledged um, different sites of oppression, whether it was race, whether it was gender, whether it was orienta sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. um, I also like the attention she gave to, to mothering, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, so that, that for me was very, very important. Um, mm. I also was caught by Interestingly enough, an old book, by, uh, well, old in, in my terms, you know, Lonely Londoners by Sam Selva. Um, uh, the color with which he wrote, you know, and the humor with which he wrote, he almost lifted the, lifted the words off the page, but you could almost see everything that he was talking about right in front of it. Mm -hmm. And I was moved by that in a way which said to me, that words can be performed in a way that people can really see what it is you're trying to say. Mm. And that's what I like to do when I read my own poetry. People must see before they, they must see it as well as hear it. Yes, yes. You know? um, and I got that from Sam Selvan's book. Um, and I also, there's another book. Wow. <laughs> My Alice Walker. Oh, yes, man. Quite a few she wrote, but there was one, The Third Life of Grange Copeland, that stood out for me. Mm -hmm. He offered space and hope for redemption of black men. Mm. Um, I find a lot of discussion now is coming about, um, about black men and their challenges of identity within this space and what that means and I find a lot of female activists as well are speaking on behalf of them I'm wondering if it's because well my husband has is an activist in his own right and a spoken word artist and he was saying when life in leggings came about he had to be a lot more aware of how he spoke to women yeah. um and call out people, mostly men, for what they have done to women. And me and him have had a discussion about some of the things that have happened to me. Right. Um, and, but he says that right now it is for women to speak on their, their issues and their traumas. But I told him he can speak as well. And I guess he's a little apprehensive in doing it because he doesn't want to take away from the the year of the woman quote unquote right now especially the black woman everything now is for um black female equality and whatnot so but i find a lot of activists are coming forward and saying um you know you you need you need to open up this space because black men were once black boys 
So mm-hmm. we need to come together as family units and, and community to make sure that there is a balance between the masculine and the feminine as well. Agreed. I, I mean, I support the, the idea of the balance of the masculine and the feminine, most definitely. Um, I, 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 I'm apprehensive in some spaces. My, my standpoint is to listen first, mm. to listen to what the men have to say. Um, mm. And when I do listen, I believe that um, depending on what they're saying and how it's being said, then they must be given space to have their own utterances because they have their own healing journeys too. Um, But I don't think that their healing journeys must be done at the expense of women. No, definitely not. Some do, you know. So I'm very mindful of that, um, that it's a very, it's a a victim blaming kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Woman this, woman that. As if to say that for them to have space, we must shut up. up. <laughs> um, but I understand for what it is. Uh, it, it is a way in which you have to see that hurt mm-hmm. and not engage in it. I don't engage in that hurt. I'm like, listen, you have issues, but deal with the issues. <laughs> you know? um, but at the same time, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a girl child with four brothers. Um, so I, I, I am, I feel honored to, to have grown up with four wonderful brothers and give me a certain level of understanding of, of how men operate and what their energies are like and how different their energies can be at an individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it stems, goes right back to the relationship that men have with their mothers. Mm-hmm whether it's a positive one, whether it's a negative one. So as much as some women don't want to pay attention to the source of men's pain and the source of men's violence towards women, Mm -hmm. and that very source really goes back to the relationship that they had with their mother. Yeah. Um, So, and... That is something that I do believe that men need to unpack. And when they are at a space of listening, then I believe we can have more conversations together. Mm. I think there's room for men to have these conversations on their own terms in the same way that women, we have had various levels of conversations on our own terms, whether it's women's, in the, you know, the women's movements across the Caribbean or you know, different branches of feminism if you want to call it that mm-hmm. um, so men there's room for that too um, uh, what I have seen though is, is that it, it opens up discussions almost as if we must shut up so that they can make you know that male issues or masculinity issues or you know the issues the challenges that they are having um, is because of us you know um, there was I can't support that. I really cannot. You know, they need to just like, they need to examine their own shit. And um, they need to also acknowledge that we occupy a space and there's enough room for everyone. So, yes, you know, more than enough. They must stop complaining. <laughs> more than enough. When they complain less and listen more and then listen from a space of, of really trying to understand then I think they will 
appreciate women more as just people that support everything that they do. Do you consider yourself a feminist or a womanist? Oh, wow. I'm not, I don't consider myself a feminist. I never have. Mm. I move in circles that of women that do call themselves feminists, but I've never been comfortable with the term. Maybe. So I've never called myself a feminist. Um, I would say I move closer to the, to the term womanist. Um, more that and other spiritual activists, you know, yeah. kind of things. Divine feminist, divine, working with the divine sacred, mm-hmm. um, goddessing, you know, are in, more in those realms than the straight political feminist lines, um, yep. which um, I don't, I don't know. Let's say I find it problematic. How's that? Yeah, I agree. And I understand a thousand percent. <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. That's another podcast, right? Yes. <laughs> the problematics of feminism. In your work as well, um, you jumped ahead just a bit before I got there, but in your work as well, um, I found you speaking on the divine feminine. Um, I'm putting that within your work. Um, there was a video of you on YouTube that I saw. Um, I think it was at the end of the Survivor Empowerment March. Um, it was organized by the Tambourine Army. And you were dancing with the drummers and just letting go and just being one with spirit and everything. Could you tell us about that moment? Whew. <laughs> How much time do I have left? <laughs> oh, wow. Um... I I was one of the co-founders co-founders of the Tambourine Army. Yes, and the movement, as we saw it, was a radical space, a radical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had decided very early that we wanted it to be grounded in spirit rather than anything religious. Um, we also acknowledged. Through my influence, I will admit um, that it had to be grounded in some kind of Afrocentric space that acknowledged African-derived spirituality Mm. in Jamaica, um, and that's something that would really ground us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And what grounds you more as African people than the drum, you Mm. know what I mean? Yeah. but that moment, <laughs> all right. <Let> me... <laughs> it seems like I just I just asked you a very loaded question. I didn't expect no, that. Don't even, you don't even realize <laughs> what it was. Right? So I tried to truncate <laughs> uh, it, it so that I can really give you a, a, a deserving answer. Um, the energy where that moment occurred is halfway tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a meeting point of a lot of hustle and bustle, buses, cars, you yeah, know. Yeah, I've been there. Right, okay then. That's, thank you. I don't forgot through that since I've been there. <laughs> so it's, it's that kind of crossroads, you yeah. know. And it's also a crossroads of chaos and order at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
it's a crossroads of many things happening at the same time. It's a crossroads of violence because a lot of accidents happen there. It's a crossroads of harassment for women because a lot of women get harassed in buses and along the road. So you like so on street. You understand? It's just is yeah. Except that Swan Street don't allow too much vehicular traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless there's the the crossroads there in between the two roads, you would get yeah. some vehicular traffic there. But yeah. not as but not to the level of halfway tree. For those who've never been, I'm trying yeah. to bridge a gap in between the two just in case anybody's trying to picture it in their mind because halfway tree will give you the dual the, the, the two lanes of traffic or the four lanes of traffic that you may not you will only get at a car at the edge part of yeah. Street, yeah so anyway um and we had walked the course before and we had to pay homage at each crossroads to to a shoe the spirit of the road mm-hmm. the before we had started the march. So the day before we had done that, because that march, the, the route had five crossroads, lo and behold. Wow. Right? So we had to do that. When we had reached halfway tree, this is the day before, myself and my friend Donnery and Michelle, um, who were, we were doing the, the, the feeding at each crossroads with rum and honey and so on, and you know, just praying for the spirit of the road to take care of us. Mm-hmm. Not to cause any confusion, not to bring down any death on the journey, not, not to keep the march going right smoothly, you know. So we had done that at each crossroads. And we reached halfway tree, and I couldn't go any further. My body and my spirit did not allow me to turn that corner. I couldn't, I could not, I could not turn the corner into halfway tree. Mm. I had nothing left in me. Physically, I couldn't bend the corner. So I said to Donnery, Somebody is going to have to go take halfway tree. Because I already knew I was the flag woman for the entire march. Yeah. I already knew that I had to work the energies, not just the entire march, but particularly at the crossroads. Mm. But I had recognized that we could not take the energy in halfway tree. Couldn't manage it. So the dancers and company, I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures of the march, um, were all dressed in black and armor, black armor. Okay. I'd said to Nyla, you know, explaining to her what we had done before. I said, listen, whatever is happening in half tree, I cannot cope with the energy that is there. So if the space is as such, since you are also at the front with me, um, I'm asking, you know, can you and your dancers basically take the road? Can you take half tree? I will leave it to spirit, but we just I had to had to be at least be arranged at somebody. Yeah, so that just in case. Just in case. Um, so as luck would have it, by the time halfway she was the fourth crossroad, fifth crossroad. By the time I finished the fourth crossroad, as as expected, I had no physical or spiritual energy left. So I was taking my time to walk to halfway tree. I'd kind of pull lag back. Empress, you know what happened in a halfway tree? Shock broke down. The sound. What? Yes. The sound stopped. The sound system stopped work. The speaker them just stopped work. Because we had this truck playing music the whole way. Empress, um, sorry, Etana and Tanya Stevens were supposed to sing. Mm-hmm. Right? The truck broke down. The sound now work. Nothing was coming. Mm-mm. So at that moment, well... Calvin, the drummer, Jody, the other drummer, Afia, the next drummer, also a priestess, 
mm. others this other priestess um as well in their current tradition say so, well the musicians going to take over so that is exactly what happened the drummers started to play the percussionists started to do them thing and they you know that's been the opening line you know huh? the drum whenever there's a drum call whenever yeah. you hear that it's been that one rhythm mm-hmm. it had to be done that is exactly what happened and the dancers took the um Nile in particular mm-hmm. and her girl her her dancers they took that moment and towards the end was where you would have seen me um coming in yeah but they had cut it eventually um whoever it is that was doing the recording of the video but it was also a spiritual space that um that in a way had to be held down by women, especially based on the intentions of the march. It was run, it was a march that was run by all survivors of violence, mm-hmm. all women who were survivors of violence. So nobody that participated were not, and when I say participated, I mean actively participated, that played a role in the march. Nobody that played a role in the march were observers to violence, every one of us. And we were very clear on that. Mm. You're participating in the march, as, as a dancer, singer, somebody doing a testimonial, somebody organizing the parking, the one, the criteria was, it don't matter what aspect of it that you're doing, you have to be a survivor because it is a survivor empowerment march. Mm-hmm. And even sustaining that was a challenge. You'd be surprised. Okay. Right. Well, most politicians don't want to make speech. <laughs> Always. Right, so... That was really the moment. It had to be held down by women and given the energy of reclaiming that space that was taken from a lot of us who have gone through violent experiences. But that is what violence does. It teaches yeah. spirit. Yeah. And it takes your body away from yourself. Yeah. So part of that moment was literally just reclaiming it back. Yeah. Giving it back to the road allowing spirit to move right through your body taking it giving it full reign and allowing your body to just go free and roam with it yeah, and you know what type of former portal was there before the paved road ah. the roads of trauma that were underneath that needed you all to do that because mm-hmm. you know sometimes we from speaking from a spiritual perspective sometimes we go through life and spirit is give you messages mm-hmm. don't listen and it gets to the point where unless you listen everything gonna mash up and break down and get flat nothing can work so that you will then have to use your foundation of connecting with your ancestors um, and and those who have come before you and let me tell you i could see people on top that truck unplugging everything they're mm-hmm. listening, they're listening, they're going forward. All right, we're gonna unplug that. Oh, shoot, so and so supposed to sing, don't worry with she. But unless you get her stroke for maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or something, and she probably signed up there wondering, wait, why are you supposed to sing? But I either can't remember the words, or I got bad feels, or something takes over the space oh. mm-hmm. in order for us to listen and react and to take action. And I think that's what happened. Well, you know, that's yeah. what happened with you. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Of, of, of the, the divine, the feeding of the divine and who we are as a people. And it had to happen. I mean, there's a way in which it had unfolded. 
we kind of knew because we were guided by spirit. Everything about that march was already guided by spirit. Nothing was by accident, down to the date of the march. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that the, I couldn't take the road, the energy in the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and it was a collective understanding, inter- even in how it unfolded. Because we never, it's not like a big discussion we had about it, you know. Okay. No, we just say, yo, you know, might not take the road, you know, Nilo, you can do your man, we'll see how it goes. Oh, it's almost like this in depth, um, in depth discussion about. We had a discussion, but in terms of how it unfolded, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, the sound broke down. Wow, wow, wow. And that was the space. So the road just parked. The truck can't move, you know. <laughs> Empress, the truck is going nowhere. Mm. The road is already blocked. The stoplight's oh. not working. The stoplight's too? Oh, yes. no. Police no. were already there because we had permission to be on the road still. Yeah. Right? But, and the space just literally opened up. Yeah, man. That, that, was, that was something beyond anything yeah. that y'all could have ever totally. to me it was one of the most memorable parts of the march you know mm. when i saw that online it was like i need to ask her about this <laughs> there was an energy coming from it mm-hmm. um and it was all intertwined with who you were as an activist but you as a performer and that moment with the tambourine army and you being as you know at the beginning of the founding the founding of it and everything and what it represented and i was like i need to ask her about this because yeah people might see it and be like oh she was just you know celebrating or whatever but i was like there's a lot more mm-hmm. going on here albeit i didn't expect it to be as deep as it went <laughs> but you're right because it was different it certainly was and one of the things that we all learned in organizing the march was the spiritual impact of violence against women Mm. and the fact that the response to that impact has to be spiritual as well yes you know yeah i mean the the programmatic interventions is one way you know the the research is another you know but we, in order to make that psychic or that sick, psychic, I don't know if psychic is the word I want, mm. but that split of negative energy that holds in the body and the spirit, yeah. of violence, right? In order to make that break from that trauma, mm. medication can help you. You know? It can carry to a state of functioning, but that, that rupture, that's the yeah. word I look for. That rupture, has to be done in a spiritual way. And that is what we, all, we were learned. And what, that, that, that was what I learned from that march. Mm. And it has impacted my work since that I'm still trying to unravel and why I'm exploring more of the divine feminine. Because to mm. me, that is where the response is. We'll probably talk a lot more after this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I, most definitely. There's some healing that has to take place. Yes. Questions that need to be answered that feminism will not provide. That's a nice intertwine with our previous question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little, just enough salt, you know, to keep it at bay. <laughs> that is a good thing I like seasoning. 
And now, listen to a poem dedicated to the Tambourine Army written by Taitu Hiran. I see a band of women hooded in red and brandishing sticks ready to bust some man with lick. I see a band of women hooded in green ready ready for wheel cutlass and slice off some raping dicks. I see a band of women hooded in black execution squad strong backs hip firmly planted feet stance ready 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 to fire some blood clot shot. I see a band of women in red gathering over a cauldron of hot bring spells to torment your soul with no sympathy for your ears i feel it for you but i'm sorry to hear but i know it must be hard but let us do an investigation first from jamaica to belize to the bahamas to trinidad to barbados to st lucia to grenada and st vincent too i see a band of women gathering her flock, molding her rage and taking stock. Stock of men that dismiss the pain of women. Taking stock of man that scorn our bodies gutted and pussy sliced open. And still have the nerve to want come look we. And here we are bleeding, bleeding, bleeding for more years than the collective labor that brought all of our humanity here. And I beg we to still be nice and oh smile i see a band of women seeing you mano and shaking head in shame at your broken stubborn hard air state look what babylon a do down your lad look what babylon a do down your look what babylon a do we down lad boy them na have no mercy no so i go to the sea and I gaze into the waves. I step in and I wash my rage. I gaze again and I see the sea that joins these islands. And I see, yes, I see, I see a band of women getting ready, ready, already ready, taking up space. I see a band of women not asking permission, not fighting for space, but occupying more space. Do yourself a favor, man. Oh, stop grumble grow before we wrap i always ask for three books for our digital bookshelf so do you have any books that you would recommend to our listening audience that they should check out oh wow um i am reading that i'm reading now or just generally in general even if it's one that you read it now i have liz thompson's book that i'm rereading actually Okay. How to I'm, be happy. I'm reading this three, uh, I'll share three books, but I, I'll share two books that I'm reading now and then a, one that I read years ago. Okay. Um, one of the books that I'm reading now is a book called Manifest Now mm -hmm. by Ideal Ahmed. And it's really about um, paying attention to raising your own vibration and frequency mm -hmm. in how you get the the life or the reality that you want, you know, understanding the power of the word, understanding the power of your thoughts and your, and then all the relationship between your thoughts and your actions mm. and looking at um, how your mental state impacts your physical and spiritual state. And then figuring out all that and understanding the power of manifesting yeah. uh, that, that, that one has really been, and it has exercises as well. So it's okay. Really, 
So um, this is one that I'm reading now. Uh, I'm actually almost finished. It's been my summer reading. Nice. Um, then the other one that I just finished reading that it was a lovely easy read was Common's book, um, Let Love Have the Last Word. Mm. Um, I, I, I bought it online because of the interview that he had with Jada Pinkett Smith on Red, Red Table, whatever it is. Yeah, Red Table Talk. Right, Red Table Talk. Um, and I said, hmm, let me try and see, because he's one of, he, I like, I like, I like Common. I like Common, you know, I like his mind, I like his music, I like um, his energy, I like his spirit, you know, as a human being. So mm. I kind of pay attention to, to, um, that was interesting. I didn't expect that one to be there. Then, so those are the, that's when I just finished. And then I'm reading one now called Goddess Wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also is, well, as, it's really as it, as, it, as it says, you know, it's really looking into um, the different ways in which we have lost touch with our goddess wisdom, you know, mm-hmm. our innate sense as, as expressions of the divine and the different ways in which patriarchy has left its own imprint on us without us even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And it also, so it gives you a lot of background information on goddesses that were part and parcel of, of certain traditions before. So it goes through like Kali and Durga and all okay. the of Hindu goddesses, it goes through a couple of the, the Greek pantheons. Uh, so that one I'm, I'm smack in the middle of now because I, precisely because that's where I am. I'm really mm. trying to come to a better understanding of how women can claim space from a more goddess and divine centered way um, than, um, yeah, than the, yeah, so that's where I am where that is concerned. Okay. Um, Let's see, the other one that I'm partially reading, I pick it up every now and then. <laughs> Marta Moreno Vega's book, The Art of My Soul, The Living Traditions of Santa Dia. Mm. Um, so I go through, it's more I'm going through, depending on what I'm looking for. So um, that is one that I've been in and out of for the last year, since January. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, but... In terms of what you said, what I should recommend people to read, you think? <laughs> I don't know. I, it, I guess it, be, it, be, it depends on where people are at in their own journey. Okay. Um, what I liked about what, the, the, what I got from Common's book um, was this notion of love beyond romantic love and how you can love as a, as a living being. Yeah. And, and operate from that space of love, mm. you know, love for your fellow human being, you know. So every time you feel anger, rage, or 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 frustration, you know, in the, even in the slightest situation, like mm. the other day, I, I went to the bank mm. and I get to the door three minutes before the bank was supposed to close, and them never let me in. What? I was so upset. Avex, 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 Avex. Because I, I had my day planned and this was the last thing I needed to do. I was really annoyed. Don't trust banks in Barbados. If you go to bank, <laughs> go to bank. Don't be, oh, I got it later. Mm-mm. I was so annoyed. I'm <laughs> <on> a friend. 
<laughs> and then they're arguing with the security guard. Just let me come in, man. He would not budge. Nope. So I said to myself, Taito, what would love do? <laughs> At this precise moment. <sighs> and I took a deep breath, you know. The man, the man just doing his job, you know. Yeah. I took a deep breath and I said, sir, I know you're doing your job. I've had a long day. And I explained to him the long day that I had. And I really didn't plan to do this. And so, and so you know, the man let me in. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So I, I took a lot from that, you know, in terms of work. And there's a lot more, but I got value from that. In, in every time there is this, whatever it is that's happening around you, you yeah. pause long enough to ask yourself the question, what would love do in this instance? Yeah, okay. it brings balance. Brings balance. How can you respond from a loving way? Hmm. Not just to get what you want, but just to bring peace to the situation, you know? Yeah. In another occasion, maybe love is not the answer, but you know what I mean? Yeah. That very, so I think I that- I think love is the answer all the time, because even if you want to speak on a, on a position of trauma, you being the person unfortunately receiving that trauma, you still have to speak from a, a space of love, love of self, love self. And, and how you're going to stand up for yourself. I think that love is the nucleus of all things. If you are ever in doubt about anything, as you say, what would love do? Yes. And go from there. That was awesome. Oh, where can we find you before I go? Anybody out there want to get in contact with amazing, phenomenal Taito Huron? Where can I contact with you? Um, the Women and Development Unit Facebook page, WAND, is open. Mm-hmm. Send messages to me there. Um, okay. Uh, my personal email address, I'm fairly accessible, taheron at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then uh, the office phone number as well, 1246-430-1130. And that goes to two. Okay. Um, those are the most, the, 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 the three most accessible ways. Mm-hmm. By the time available. And then depending on the interaction, I might pass on the mobile number. Ah, okay. Thank you so much for being a part of the Right Women podcast. This was a beautiful discussion. I, I had fun. I hope so everybody else out there. Um, we've never met people. This is we need to <laughs> this is the first time <laughs> I'm meeting her. Can you believe it? Yes, yes. <laughs> so it will happen. It will. When, when I must admit, thank you so much for your patience because yeah. I'm busy with research this summer. So I've been, I recognize that I've been difficult to. I totally on. understand. I appreciate your patience. You know? Everything is supposed to happen and is meant to happen. So. That's right. Agreed. agreed. So I promise the next time we meet, I will share a cup of Jamaican coffee with you. Uh, you can walk with Bajan fish cakes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I see you're still here. Great. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Short story writer, filmmaker, screenwriter, playwright, Shakira Bourne from Barbados. Think about it. And after a couple days, I might be like, okay, this person is talking foolishness, but they have a point right here. You know, mm-hmm. and that's maybe something that I could do going forward. Mm-hmm. So I, and I just always have respect for the work. I guess you could say it. I always yeah. try to do my best at that particular time. And I acknowledge that if I had, if, if I 
could have done, if I could do better, I will next time. Yeah. And I think that that's also why a lot of people work with me as mm-hmm. well, because I want taking their opinions, taking feedback, and then I always give my best. Hey, bookworms, what's going on? Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about the podcast, you can visit empresszinga.com slash the right women podcast. That's empress, Z-I-N-G-H-A, to see our growing digital bookshelf and past episodes. You can also drop us a line at the right women podcast at gmail.com. I've been your host and storyteller, Empress Zynga from Barbados, reminding you to always believe in your magic. See you next chapter.